Well, good morning. It's great joy to be with you. Got an extra hour of sleep, right? So you're rested. I don't want to see anybody napping this morning. No, I'm just kidding. You're welcome to nap. That takes the pressure off me, actually. If you do, you could all go to sleep. It'd be fine. Um, you got an extra hour rest. That means I get an extra hour to preach, correct? Amen. No, I'm just kidding. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I want to answer um, the question this morning, essentially, who is the church for? Paul gives us a portrait of the church centered on the finished work of Christ, centered on the gospel, helping us to reprioritize our experience of church, which I think helps us to answer the question, who is the church for? As you're turning there and getting settled, I'll tell you a little story. Uh, Once upon a time, people were very kind and sweet to each other. They lived in perfect harmony and peace. They were completely open with each other and vulnerable to each other. There were no hindrances or obstacles to life-giving, vital, flourishing relationships. Once upon a time, people were perfectly in sync with each other and lived wholly in a spirit of unity. Of course, there were only two of them at the time, but they had a really (laughs) good deal going while it lasted. It it lasted all of one chapter in the Bible. Then in Genesis chapter 3, the only two people in the world wreck everything. Just four chapters into the Bible, when there's still just one family in existence in the world, we see our first murder. By chapter 6, God says all of mankind is corrupt and he sends a flood to kill everyone but one family, effectively setting a reset on humanity. And just three chapters later, just the ninth chapter of the Bible, that family indulges in shameful behavior and is torn in two. And so it goes. The human experiment at getting along in the world um, progresses through the Old Testament. We're not even halfway through the first book of the Bible And we've fully embraced the curse pronounced upon us from our earliest disobedience. From the get-go and thereafter, you and I have worked exceptionally hard at becoming experts at enmity with each other. In the 11th chapter of the Bible, we find the curious historical account of the Tower of Babel, which is ostensibly a great work of unity in mankind. People are finally working together to construct a great monument to heaven. Finally, we've gotten our act together. And mankind is working as a team, and as they say, teamwork makes the dream work. It's every utopian's dream, but the Lord isn't pleased. Why? Well, because of verse 4 of Genesis chapter 11, it tells us that the people have come together to make a name for themselves. And the Lord had actually commanded them to spread out and fill the earth and take dominion, to be on mission, as it were. But they decided to disobey that command and build a silo as a testimony to their own power and resourcefulness. So consequently, the Lord confuses them in their language. They can't understand each other, and therefore they can't work together. And the fallout from these first 11 chapters of the Bible are severe and increasingly awful throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Family rifts turn into tribal conflicts. Tribal conflicts turn into generational curses. Nations rise and fall, rise again and fall again. And the people of God, Israel, are beset on all sides by enemies. They are constantly um, threatened from the outside, but they are also constantly threatened, infected, if you will, from the inside themselves by idolatry and conflict in their own borders. And then we get to the New Testament. 
And the Son of God comes and He preaches peace and unity through repentance of sin and belief in Himself. Essentially saying this, stop trying to make a name for yourself and instead seek to make My name great. And in Acts chapter 2, after the resurrected Jesus has ascended, the Holy Spirit comes to bless those who have repented and believed in Jesus. And something remarkable happens. As the church is first formed to the good news of Jesus, this new body of believers, a great reset, a fresh start for a new people of God in a world of self-interest and conflict, the Holy Spirit descends and marks the believers with something like tongues of fire. And people who previously could not understand each other suddenly did. Acts chapter 2, verse 7. We can hear in our native language. And Pentecost then becomes the great unbabbling of Babel. Where there was division and confusion, now there is unity and understanding. Where there was conflict between humans centered on themselves, now there is peace between humans who are centered on Christ. Just two chapters later, in Acts chapter 4, we read this about the early church. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. And they all lived happily ever after. Just kidding, it lasted about eight seconds. By the very next chapter, the Lord strikes dead two of the members of the early church for dishonesty and withholding money. And by the chapter after that, Acts chapter 6, we see our first glimpse of an ethnic rift in the church as the Greek believers accuse the Jewish believers of neglecting the Greek widows with the benevolence funds. And the church has been trying to figure out how to get back to Genesis 2 and Acts chapter 2 ever since. How do you become an Acts chapter 2 church with Acts chapter 6 problems? This is something Paul addresses continually through all of his letters to the churches, but it's perhaps seen most keenly here in Ephesians. It's Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read all the way to verse 16. Our focus text is going to be verses 1 through 7, but I want you to see some of the context. So we're going to go to verse 16. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into Him who is the head, Christ. From Him the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would bless our exulting in it this morning. Father, help this time to be a time of investment in our spiritual future. And Father, we know that when we gather to praise the name of your Son, 
to call out to you, to be open to your Holy Spirit, that you are investing in us as well. And so we ask that you would help us to see the glory of your Son so clearly, so freshly, so newly, that even those who uh, may not know you would pass from death to life, and that those who do know you would be uh, rejuvenated and re-energized in their faith this very morning. We believe you can do that. We ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. And it's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen. Uh, you probably know that Ephesus was a large city in the Roman Empire. It's actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Very cosmopolitan city, very diverse city. Um, lots of people, we might say, trying to make a name for themselves. There is uh, the spirit of Babel at work in Ephesus. What's really interesting about Paul's letter to the Ephesians is that there doesn't seem to be a particular circumstance or occasion for him to write the letter. He's not responding to any specific uh, work of heresy. Of course, the early church was always sort of in danger of false teaching and the infiltration of heretics and that sort of thing. But there doesn't seem to be any specific thing happening in the church or a specific kind of heresy that he's addressing. It's what we might call a more generalized letter. And so I think it's a little more um, easily applicable um, to us. We can see ourselves in this church. And when I say us, I just essentially mean the church in the West, the church in America in the 21st century. Uh, we have the spirit of Babel run amok in our culture. And so when Paul writes to us to, uh, when he writes to Ephesians to speak about uh, unity and making efforts to sort of repent of self-interest and adopt this corporate interest in each other and in Christ, we see something that is ever relevant for us in our experience of church. Faced with forces outside that tempt and try us, lures and baits to worldliness and idolatry, the church in every age, and certainly in our age, is threatened constantly by the spirit of the age. And faced with forces inside that stifle our harmony with each other, that drift us toward insular thinking and self-interested attitudes, we are constantly threatened by division. Every church, because there are sinners in every church, has the potential for division and divisiveness in it. So every church essentially faces this decision. Every local church must say, will we embrace the spirit of Babel or will we embrace the spirit of Pentecost? And Paul in Ephesians 4 is guiding us by the gospel toward the unity and harmony of the spirit of Pentecost. Verse 1, to live worthy of the calling you have received. So we ask ourselves as we think about our church, who is the church really for? And Paul would have us answer in the immediate sense that the church is not primarily for me. It's not for us. The church is primarily for them. If you're a message note-taker, that's actually the, the first point. It's not very profound at all. It's very simple. But that's the first point of the message. The church is for them. The church is for them. The church is, of course, for them in the sense of the outside world, certainly. We are called by Christ to be a city on a hill. We are a light to the world, in, in, in a sense reflecting He who is the light of the world. We are called to be on mission in the world for the sake of Christ's glory. And we see this in how Christ applies even the great commandment to the great commission. The great commandment, of course, is that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
And the second is like unto it, that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. And the Lord essentially takes that great commandment and applies it to uh, the practicality of Christian behavior and says, here is now your mandate. You obey that commandment by going out into all the world, making disciples of all people, teaching them everything I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We see this same dynamic reflected in all of Paul's letters, in fact, but um, one of the most startling revelations for us um, uh, sometimes is, is when you get to the end of the, his letter to the Romans, which we usually see as sort of um, uh, this, this epic sweeping scope of covenantal faithfulness. Uh, you have these really rich doctrines in, in that book, uh, but also some very simple ways, right? Like sometimes even leading people to salvation. You, you work them through the Romans road and those sorts of things. Uh, Romans is such a rich and deep book, but when you get to the end, Paul basically says, I've told you all these things that you might be a light to the Gentiles. All of this knowledge, all of this doctrine, all this theology is not meant to be hoarded. It's not meant to simply become your, your intellectual storehouse. It's meant to be riches to be scattered and shared with others. And so the church, as the body of Christ, is to be on the same mission as the physical body of Christ, which is to seek and save that which is lost. So from top to bottom, each of us has to rethink what we mean to get out of church. And if the greatest commandment involves loving our neighbor as ourselves, a self-seeking approach to church is in defiance of God's commands. We see this pattern throughout the New Testament often referred to as the one another's, the one another verses. There's lots of one another's in the Bible that together give us a portrait of God's vision for the church's interpersonal relationships. Here, Paul urges this in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one another in love. Now, the three qualities that are listed there, humility, gentleness, and patience, are all qualities of others-orientedness. In fact, gentleness and patience tend to flow from the first characteristic listed, which is humility. And what I mean by that is this. It is incredibly difficult to embrace gentleness and patience with each other if we have not embraced first humility. The humility of putting others first. So, for instance, if I have to have my own way, if my vision for my experience of church is purely my own preferences, my own power, my own comfort... I'm going to be very ungentle with you and very impatient with you if I sense you as a threat to my comfort or my power or my position. I haven't embraced humility, therefore you stand in my way of my preferred experience of church. And we'll be impatient and ungentle with anyone or any circumstance that frustrates our vision for church meeting my needs. And there is a common theme that runs throughout many of the stories of people leaving churches, whether it's leaving one church to go to another. And there's valid reasons to do that. If a church is teaching false doctrine or there's unrepentant sin uh, that's unchecked in a church, particularly among leadership, that can be a valid reason to leave for another church. But there's also invalid reasons to go to other churches. And we see some of that same spirit in the stories of those who decide to leave church altogether. They're not going from one church to another. They just leave church altogether. We see it in the the contemporary stories of the ex-evangelicals, they're calling them, those who have left evangelicalism all behind, or the de-churched folks. What is it? Well, it's the idea that church exists primarily for me. In a recent article in the magazine The Hill, uh, we read this, the percentage of Americans who belong to a church is at an all-time low. Among respondents to a recent Gallup poll, only 50% 
identified themselves as attending a congregation, representing a dramatic 20 percentage point reduction since the turn of the century. Institutional religion in America is struggling, especially with young people. A third of millennials now identify as unaffiliated, meaning they don't claim any religious identity. And even among those younger adults who do claim a religion, only 42% are members of a congregation. The impact of these changes on our civic and community landscape is drastic. Mark Chavez at Duke University estimates that 3,500 churches close every year. But these trends don't signal the end of religion, the author says. And I think, well, do tell. What is the upside to this, these stats? It says, uh, instead, they signal that the way people are doing religious things is changing. Despite decline in institutional affiliation, the human hunger for belonging and becoming <laughs> persists, and young adults are finding other ways outside of church to connect to what matters most. Our research at Harvard Divinity School suggests that greater numbers of people are doing, quote-unquote, religious things in secular spaces like meetup groups or CrossFit gyms or healing circles. And I have no idea what a healing circle is. I assume it's the thing you go to after you've been to the CrossFit gym. If I was in the, <laughs> if I was in the CrossFit gym, I'd be like, where's the healing circle? I need it right now. Actually, the circle I want is a donut. That's, I'll have the donut. That's my healing circle right in this moment. It says, rather than seeking the solace of worship services after the death of a loved one, younger people turn to groups like the dinner party that bring people with similar experiences together over a meal to talk honestly about life after loss. Profoundly religious perspectives and behaviors continue even outside the church. For example, even among the unaffiliated, two and three still believe in a God or higher power. Nearly one in five pray every day. Reasons include, and this is, I think, the key takeaway from the entire excerpt, reasons include wanting to leave behind a formulaic worship experience and that religious affiliation tends to overwrite self-identity in ways that seem to compromise personal integrity and authenticity. What is being valued here? Self-identity, personal integrity, authenticity. Two words jump out at me. Self and personal. Look, if, if what you're interested in through this whole Christianity thing is a pursuit of self-actualization, self-fulfillment, self-fill-in-the-blank, then you're right. Church isn't for you. It's not. But what if church isn't ultimately about you? What if it's more for them? And this is why we have to be very careful about putting all of our ire on those young people leaving the church for the coffee shop or CrossFit or whatever it is. Because the spirit of personal autonomy is alive and well in all of us, regardless of our age. And it is found inside the church just as frequently as it's found outside the church. When we engage the church as personal improvement center, when we seek out of it our, our, our own comfort or fulfillment, we come at cross purposes with God's design. And I, I'm convinced this is the root of so much conflict and division in the church. It's the root of the conflict and division that's been in the church since Acts chapter 5 and chapter 6. And it's the root today. When we look to the church and the people in the church as primarily about serving me, we are setting ourselves up for hurt and strife. Paul says in verse 3, make every effort, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What would this look like? making every effort. What would making every effort to keep the unity look like? Well, the unity is birthed by the Spirit of God, he says. 
unity of the Spirit. And we know from our scriptures elsewhere that God is love. So the Spirit of God is love. So it might mean having a disposition of love for each other. Well, that sounds nice, but what does that mean? It's like we all know we're supposed to love each other. We're taught that from a very young age. What would that look like in our experience of church? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love hopes all things and bears all things and believes all things. So I think making an effort to walk with the Spirit in church would mean fundamentally embracing a posture of optimism and openness with each other. Many of us have church experiences where the exact opposite is the case. Church is where all the cynical people are and the very closed-off, insular, isolated people are. I've known believers who are their fakest on Sunday morning. Not out of any malicious intent, but because they know that's the most vulnerable place to be real. I can be myself in the real world. Isn't that sad? I can't be my real self at church. So they send their religious avatar to church every Sunday. Put on some kind of righteous facade. And consequently, you never get to know anybody. They never get to know you. We just know each other's religious versions of each other. And not our true selves. And yet our true selves are the selves that Christ died for. Christ didn't die for our religious avatars. He didn't die for the cleaned up version of you. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. At the right time for the ungodly, he died. This might mean making an effort to think the best of each other rather than viewing each other with suspicion or making assumptions or judging motives. Of all the one another's in the New Testament, we never uh, encounter commands like suspect one another or scrutinize one another or size one another up. So much conflict in the church could be avoided if we just sought to listen and to understand, if we didn't make assumptions about what people are thinking or what they really mean. I heard what they said, but I know what they really mean. And instead, we advocated for each other in our hearts. Assumptions and evaluated motives can kill the spirit of unity in a church, just like they can kill the spirit of unity in interpersonal relationships, whether it's marriage or or friendships. I'll tell you a story. There's a, a, a dear lady, a friend of mine in, in, in my church. Before I moved to Kansas City to work at Midwestern Seminary, I pastored a church in Vermont. And um, the, there was a, an older lady there that we had become quite close, uh, actually, because uh, um, through uh, a deep experience of grief, her son died of a drug overdose. I, I was actually on the scene when they were removing his body from what was essentially a crack house in downtown Rutland, Vermont. I was there in the hospital with her when she had to identify the body of her son preached his funeral. We had gotten quite close, and so we had this great rapport. We would speak to each other all the time. I mean, she was just like a mother um, to me. Her, her husband uh, did a lot of groundskeeping around the church and in the cemetery across the street, so I saw him multiple times a week, and many times as she came to see him, she would stop in, and we would talk, and so we just had this great rapport, but I noticed one Sunday um, that she didn't come say hi. She didn't come speak to me. We didn't have a conversation, and, that, and that's okay. I mean, every now and then, you're not able to you know, talk to everybody on a Sunday, that sort of thing, but then the next Sunday came, and the same thing. I noticed that she was kind of keeping a distance, and she just looked a little forlorn. And, and, and then I noticed on the third Sunday, same thing. And so I just sense there's this coolness. You just know when there's some kind of coolness there or an aloofness that wasn't there before with someone. And so I, I just thought, I, I can't let this go a whole month. And, and so I went to approach her, and I said, you know, I, I, I just feel like there's something um, you know, between us, or, or some, I don't know if I've offended you in some way, but my, you know, instinct was to think that I had, you know, hurt her or, or, or said something that offended her or something, 
And, and I had, in fact. And she said, you know what? I wasn't going to say anything. I was just trying to, to let it go. It was like, there's no big deal, but I, I can't let it go. So thank you for coming to me. I just have to tell you, three weeks ago when I was sharing with you about my plans to start a charitable organization in my, in the, in, in my son's name um, that would help you know, recovering addicts, um, and I was telling you about how I was studying, you know, about how to start a 501c3 and all that sort of thing. And, and you were looking at me and you were nodding your head while I was talking and you were saying, interesting, interesting. And I just felt so dismissed. I just felt like you wanted me to stop talking uh, um, and, and you just had better places to be in the midst of that conversation. And so I, was, I, mean, I just was heartbroken over that experience. And uh, I said, I'm so sorry that, that, you know, my demeanor struck you that way. I had a completely different experience of the conversation. My experience of the conversation was she was telling me this information, and I was looking at her interface, and I was nodding, and I was saying, interesting, interesting, interesting. Now, you'll say, that sounds exactly the same. And it was. The facts were the same. What we experienced factually of the conversation was exactly the same, but our experience emotionally of the conversation was totally different. I was saying interesting and nodding because I was actively listening and I was interested, which is why I was saying interesting. But somehow it triggered some experience for her. It felt like a, a, a verbal stiff arm of some kind. Even though that was the furthest thing from my heart, that's how she experienced our conversation. And she went three weeks thinking that I didn't care anything about what she was going through or what she was dealing with, that I had no interest at all. And I was just broken over that. I'll give you another example that's a little different. There was a, uh, an older lady in our church named Miss Ann. She was in her mid-80s. She was a widow. She lived across the street from the church. She would come every Sunday. Um, she's gone to be with the Lord now um, a couple years ago, but she faithfully came every Sunday morning. One particular Sunday, um, I was preaching on a biblical sexual ethic, and I was making the point, of course, that um, any sex outside the covenant of one man and one woman in marriage uh, is a sin. But I was trying to stress that many times we, uh, we locate that sin only in young people premaritally, but it extends through every age and any circumstance outside the covenant of marriage. And so I was sharing this anecdote about how my wife and I had some older friends who um, would say things like because they had been married before and either widowed or divorced, that they had saved themselves from marriage then, and now it was okay to have extramarital sex or, or sex outside of marriage. And I was making the point, at least I thought that I was, the, uh, you'll see whether it was clear or not, that that's still a sin. It's not just the sin of young people, it's the sin of anyone outside of marriage. Well, she came up to me after the service. She met me in the right side aisle, and she said, Pastor, I have to ask you a question. And I said, sure. And she's, she said, are you saying that if you've been married before, and you're not married now, that it's okay to have sex outside of marriage. I said, oh my word, dear sister. I was saying the exact opposite of, of that. She goes, well, that's, that's what I thought. And, and so I don't know, like, if uh, in her mind, you know, if either it was a new teaching for her or, you know, it was going against something she had heard all her life or she just didn't understand. But imagine if she had walked out the door not asking me for clarification. She could have walked out thinking, well, the pastor, I don't know if she's, you know, she's in her mid-80s and widow. Maybe she's looking for a loophole. I don't know what she was doing. But. <laughs> no, I, I don't, she wasn't doing that. She would have laughed at that joke, by the way. She would have thought it was funny. I think in her mind, what she heard was a disconnect from what she knew to be true. And it sounded like it came from the pulpit. And she thought, I better ask him about this. And I'm so glad she did. Because the very idea of her going home thinking that the, the preacher had said it was okay 
to violate God's standards. That would be heartbreaking to me. There's, so two different examples. One person came to ask for clarity, but what if she hadn't? And this kind of thing happens in churches all the time. We have different experiences of conversations than others. We, uh, we read something into a tone of voice or into a demeanor. I remember when I first started preaching in Vermont and I would look out into the congregation and I'm from the South and so people are just more engaged there or they look like they are. Sometimes they're not engaged and they act like they are and I've learned, you know, anyway. But I got to, the, I got to Vermont and everyone just looked like they were mad at me. And I'm like, what do I got to do up here to get you, you know, just to at least crack a, I mean, this is about the good news. We should be you know, just a little happy, even if you don't like the sermon, the mess, you know, the, the idea behind it is good, right? And what I discovered is that's just how they listen. There was, you know, one guy, uh, retired Air Force colonel, um, dear friend, and he would sit right there with his arms crossed. Some of you guys got your arms crossed. I'm not making assumptions about you, brothers. Arms crossed and his head back like this, like he was looking down his nose at me. Like. And the first sort of like, you know, couple of miles, like this guy, he can't, st- I, 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 how can I have to win him over somehow? And it turns out he's loving every minute of it. That's just how he listens. That's just how he looks. We got, we got to stop making judgments based on these perceptions. My wife and I will have a conversation with somebody, and we receive these things differently because we're wired differently. She's an extrovert, for one thing, and I'm an introvert. And so I remember we had a you know, conversation with this person. We had just met at a social engagement, and he came up, and, and then he walked away, and she said, oh, wasn't he so fun? And I was like, he's a big jerk. You know, he did all the talking. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I'm one of the most abrasive people I've ever met in my life. She just thought he was delightful, right? Two diff- same experience, two different experiences of the same circumstance. Brothers and sisters, so many problems could be avoided if we just loved each other enough to hope the best, believe the best, to bear all things. And the reality is we don't have another choice. The church is God's plan A for the expression of Christianity, and there's no such thing in the Bible as solo discipleship, so we have to work at figuring this thing out. And simply showing up with our own interests and our own needs in mind is not how he's designed this place to work. The church is meant to be a picture of the gospel. Maybe you've heard um, the attribution of C.S. Lewis about how he says friendship starts. It's a, it's, he says it's kind of a me too sort of moment. Someone shares a life experience or an interest or a passion that they have, and you discover, I have the same interest, or the same, I went to the same school, or something, and you say, me too, me too. And he says, that's the spark that friendship begins. But in church, in church, we covenant with people who don't share our experiences at all. And we say, I'm here for you. I have no idea what it was like to grow up that way. I grew up in a, a, a different place, different kind of family. We, you and I, we couldn't be more different. But I'm with you. We're in this together. Why? Because we share the most important thing, which is Christ Jesus, who is Lord over all things. See, the blood of Jesus doesn't just make strangers friends. It makes enemies brothers. And there's so much that threatens to divide our local churches. Sometimes it's just our own self-interest. Sometimes it's our inability to assume the best about each other, to take what we've heard or perhaps misheard and assume to be a motive. In my church back home, I'm a member of Liberty Baptist Church, and, and I started thinking through, like, what are the, the tension points that the enemy would love to use to kind of put a wedge in and divide us? And there are multiple things. So we may shore up one door, and a lot of times it's, it's the doctrinal door, and you've got to shore that up. We've got to make sure the devil can't get in in our doctrine. We're going to be airtight on that, and that's great. But there's a hundred other doors he would love to use. 
So I started thinking through just as an exercise in my own church. We're a revitalization effort. Our pastor came about seven years ago. Uh, since then, the church has grown tremendously, and it's grown somewhat younger as it's grown numerically. We're also in the bubble of Midwestern Seminary, so we attract a great number of students at the seminary and also people employed by the seminary. So now we got seminary people and non-seminary people, like a community within a community. And so I start thinking through, what are potential divisions? Well, one is the older generation, younger generation. That's very common in all kinds of churches. But we've got seminary, non-seminary. We've got people who have come in newly through the revitalization work and people who've been here a long time. So they may not be old in age, but they've been in the church since they were kids. So they're you know, part of the institutional oldness of the church. We have, like many churches do, married people and single people. We have, as many churches do, sometimes different views on politics, political issues. What side do you fall on? We have um, differences of opinion about non-essential theological matters, tertiary matters of theology. We have different life situations, cultural backgrounds, ethnicities in our church. Begin to think through yourself. What are some potential differences here in our church, at First Baptist Church, Newcastle, that the enemy would love to turn into division if he could? The devil would love to take any of our differences and turn them into reasons for distrusting and judging each other, which is why we have to make every effort to maintain the spirit of unity through the bond of peace. Because the blood of the one who makes us one is more powerful than the spirit which seeks to divide us. It is our responsibility together, not just to guard gospel doctrine, you have to do that, but also to cultivate a gospel culture. And that begins not with making sure everybody is serving us, me, but with my serving you, with us serving them. So let's all of us ask the question, who's the church for? And answer, it's for them. And yet, and yet, secondly, equally profound, the church is for you. The church is for you. It's for you in a couple of ways. First, it's for you for the very reasons we just discussed, that it's for them. And I know you're thinking, you just pulled a fast one, because the second point is the same as the first one. Well, kind of, but not really. Let me explain. (laughs) You're answering the call to focus on the needs of others instead of yourself is actually good for you. It's actually good for you. Why is it good for you? Because it's like Jesus who put the needs of others ahead of Himself. It becomes your becoming like Christ. To become more Christ-like, you have to cooperate with the Spirit's work in humbling you and decentering you from yourself. And so we come into the experience of church sometimes like we come into the experience of marriage, thinking, you complete me. You exist to fulfill me. And while marriage and church membership are not the same, there is an analogy there that I think is worthy of consideration. Because just as in marriage, when we do church simply for ourselves, we invite frustration and irritation. We are ungentle and impatient with each other because we don't have humility. And we are messy, imperfect people, and you put messy, imperfect sinners together in close proximity, you're going to get problems. Sometimes when I've officiated weddings, I just want to spend the first seven minutes asking the, you know, groom and bride, are you sure? Are you really sure? Are you extra sure? Because you've been on your best behavior till now. It's about to get real. Tim Keller says that marriage is the Mack truck driving through our lives, revealing our flaws and humbling our reactions. Well, church is a Mack truck as well. Because church is not primarily for us, but for them, it reveals my self-centeredness. And that's so good for me. I need to be confronted with my own self-centeredness. It's good to have the constant de-centering of church in my life. 
In fact, your very church attendance is an act of self-crucifixion, a rebellion against your sense of self-sovereignty that you're even here this morning when millions of people thought, oh, I get an extra hour of rest, I get to the golf course, I can watch the pregame, I can have a leisurely breakfast with my family, I can putt around in the yard. You said, no, I don't live just for me. My life is not my own. It belongs to the Lord, and so I'm going to gather with His body. That's a decision you made. That's good. I know sometimes the sermon's a little or maybe a lot longer than you would like it to be. Or the songs aren't quite to your taste. The sanctuary's too cold or it's too hot, sometimes at the same time for two different people. That's another shared experience my wife and I have. It's like, I'm freezing. I'm like wiping sweat on my forehead. What are you talking about? Are we in the same room? <laughs> How about this one? I've, I've experienced this multiple times uh, during my days of pastoral ministry. You get the same responses, like two different responses from the same worship service. And someone says, people were so cold. They didn't approach me. Uh, I felt ignored. No one welcomed me. And another person said, I felt overwhelmed. I felt swarmed by people. I just wanted to be anonymous and get in and get out. Like, are, these, are they coming to the same church? This is the same service? I know that there are probably a million things that you would do differently if you were in charge. <laughs> a thousand decisions that you would have loved to have consulted on. If they had called me, I would have told them not to put that plant in front of the whatever, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> That's a particular pet peeve of mine. But anyway. Just Maybe over the lifetime of going to church, there's at least a hundred people you've met that you thought they would, uh, should fellowship elsewhere. I'd rather not see them, right? It's the benefit of multiple services. Now you can just go to the other service. To avoid it. <laughs> so if all of that is true, just think how sanctifying going to church must be. It's almost as if corporate worship is designed and intended to stifle our self-centeredness. I mean, just think of the gathering of diverse and divinely powered saints like this. It's a community organized in part to stifle the selfish human desire for autonomy. We weren't made to be alone, you and I. And Christianity isn't designed to be followed independently. So one of the best things you and I can do each week in a world where we encounter so much that caters to our sense of self, self-service, self-help, our self-sovereignty is go to church, and have our devotion to self effectively squashed. Going to church can be like taking up our cross. Not our will be done, but the Father's. Not my interest be first, but my brothers and sisters. And in that regard, it is extremely helpful to our growth in Christ-likeness. This is what it means in verse 1 for Paul to say, live worthy of the calling you have received. Experiencing the other-centeredness of church is our living up to the birthright of the church. It's living worthy, and living worthy is a great thing. So our participation in church then is sanctifying us by God's grace in Christ because church is in fact what Christ's grace has created and is sustaining. In verses 11-16, through 16, Paul spells out Christ's vision for the church that it resembled the beautiful unity of His own body. That each of us would find our true purpose and calling in serving our part for the growth of the whole thing. When was the last time you considered not how church might benefit you, but how you might benefit the church? How can I participate in this church in such a way that I'm a benefit to the whole body, that the whole thing might look like Christ? 
Not just that I get my religious pick-me-up or get my interests fed or my theological prejudices petted, but how might I participate in this church that I might be a blessing to everyone that I come in contact with. And that means walking out not angry that I didn't hear the one thing that I wanted to hear or see the thing that I wanted to see or that people treated me like something this or that, but going in thinking, man, what a, just, what a privilege that we get to gather And this is actually the other way that church is for you. Church is for you in that it stifles your self-centeredness, which properly understood is a good thing, but it's also for you in that church is God's design for your experience of the Gospel. You need good news desperately. And the church is the place where good news reigns. In verse 7, Paul says, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What do you think the measure of Christ's gift is? So much grace. John in his Gospel says, from his fullness we receive grace upon grace. At every Gospel-believing, Jesus-worshiping church, no matter the flavor, if the true Gospel is believed and the true Christ is treasured and worshipped, there's grace to be found there. We might not got, you know, get this right as people, but Christ's sacrifice is perfect. His blood is powerful. And so what Paul is saying is that grace is the lifeblood of a church. The church is a family birthed by the Gospel of grace. And so when a church is centered on the Gospel, it becomes the best place of rest and joy for weary sinners who are desperate for good news. We are awash outside the covenant community with bad news. How terrible everything is. They feed on your fear. They feed on your prejudices. And they stoke your sense of self. You become the center of the universe out there. Which is why we can't get along with the people out there because everyone else thinks they're the center of the universe. You ever discover that? I get up, it's my day. I'm about to go about my day. And I encounter people who think it's their day. They don't know there's supporting characters in the movie of my life. They think it's the other way around. And boom, boom. And yet here we come, we center on each other, decenter ourselves. What might happen? Oh, the aroma of Christ is in a place like that. My friend Ray Orland pastors a church in Nashville, Tennessee. Actually, he recently retired over the last couple of months, but um, he would open every worship gathering with this call to worship, essentially a welcome, it's an invitation. Every single Sunday, he'd stand up front and he would say this to the gathered congregation before they would worship in song. He would say, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and to whoever will come. This church opens wide her doors and offers her welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, every local church doesn't have to say it that way, but we do have to mean it that way. In Romans 15, Paul says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And it sounds so sweet until you think, how did Christ welcome me? With absolute affection, with sacrificial love. Paul says that's how we're to welcome one another. The church is for them, which means by God's grace, it's also for you. Thirdly and finally, last point, the church is ultimately for Christ. The church is ultimately for Christ. There is at this moment serious fracturing within evangelical tribes and movements, particularly on social media, but also news media and other places. People with different viewpoints on different subjects, not just debating the issues. That's good. Evangelicals have always debated the issues. 
We, we need to do that. But in the midst of that, denouncing each other. And sometimes a bit of light breaks through, but more often than not, there's more heat than light. Why does this happen? I think back and I think, why am I, dr- why am I drawn to engage in that? And, and just where does it come from? Why does it happen? Why does it happen in any church that begins to see its tension points? We all have the tension points. You just can't avoid that. But when those tension points turn into fractures and divisions, I think it happens whenever we elevate an issue over Christ. It happens whenever we equate the glory of the church with our pet theological project or our personal political viewpoint. And the gospel of Jesus has definite implications for social, cultural, political spheres, right? You're going to vote, you better take Christ with you into the voting booth. But we have lost the plot if any of those spheres becomes brighter in our eyes than he who is the radiance of the glory of God. Nothing is brighter than Christ. Nothing is more satisfying than Christ. Nothing is more delivering to us than Christ. So we don't meet at church because we share the same politics. We don't meet at church because we share the same cultural background. We don't meet at church because we share the same social standing or the same skin color or the same economic status or life stage. We meet at church because we share the same Christ. Jesus, the Lord, the only one powerful enough to have brought us together in the first place. And one thing we often miss in Paul's letters is just how powerful he experienced this good news to be, how propulsive and energizing. Sometimes we get fixated on the content, which we need, but we miss the way he's delivering the content. It has all of the hallmarks of worship about it. The whole theological enterprise for Paul is doxological, which is to say it is worshipful. His Christianity is not merely intellectual, it's spiritual. It's not simply academic, it's adorational. And we see it in the way he even composes his sentences. Ephesians contains these really long sentences, in particular in the original language, in the, in the Greek. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-14 through 14, is actually the longest sentence ever found in the Greek language. Not just the New Testament, but the whole Greek language, longest sentence is in Ephesians chapter 1. All of this, what, is that, what does that mean? I mean, all of this, I think, is indicative of Paul writing in this almost ecstatic way. In the good sense, he's writing with his feelings on his shirt sleeves. Paul the scholar cannot help but be Paul the worshiper. Everything for him, whether scholarly or practical, has to culminate in the person and work of Christ Jesus. We see it in the beautiful gospel exposition in Ephesians chapter 2. We see it in the doxology, which ends chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And we usually when you say amen, you're done. Sing the doxology, you're done. He's like, I got three more chapters in me. All right, Paul, okay. That's just Paul doing his thing, you know. We see it here, actually, in how he centers all of our vision and all of our efforts on the primacy and the supremacy of God. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. It's a beautiful little passage. Verses 4 through 6 is so beautiful, but it's also really complex, actually. So we have to kind of take a step back and see what is he doing here? What's the structure of it? And we notice, first of all, there's a Trinitarian shape to the passage. Verse 4, he references the Spirit. Verse 5, he references the Lord, which we take as a reference to Jesus Christ. And verse 6, he references the Father. 
And then he connects some things to each person of the Trinity. The Spirit is connected to the body and to hope. Why? Because the Spirit forms the church through the hope of Jesus. And the Lord Jesus is connected to faith and baptism. Why? I think because the faith that saves us is faith placed in Jesus. And when we profess that faith, we are baptized in His image, in His death, burial, and resurrection. And then God the Father is said to be commissioning the whole thing. He is above all, through all, and in all. And this is a statement of absolute sovereignty, absolute supremacy, absolute glory. Paul positions the Trinity here at the center of church life because it's the Trinity that shapes the Gospel. The Father commissions the work, the Son accomplishes the work, and the Holy Spirit applies the work. You who are here this morning, you're here because God wanted you here. You're here by His designs. There might be a million decisions that were made throughout your life that brought you to this point, this particular church, and this particular Sunday morning on this date. All the things that had to go right and all the decisions you had to make to get here. But ultimately and fundamentally, you are here not by your idea, but by God's. His sovereignty led us to this point together on this morning. And people gather together for all kinds of reasons. We're not the only people who gather School, you know, you get together for educational purposes. People gather for concerts, sporting events, whatever it is. But the church exists for the glory of God. Made manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is His blood that is painted on those doors of entry. You didn't get into the church by your cleverness, by your intellect, your athletic ability, your social currency, And you definitely didn't get in by your good works. You got in because He alone is worthy. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so we stand here together on the same ground. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Brothers and sisters, our our participation in church is wasted if it can be explained by anything other than the Gospel of Jesus Christ. If somebody from outside could look in and say, I know why those people get together. They all you know, think the same thing politically, or they all come from the same place, or they all have the same skin color, or whatever it is. Let our churches exist as things that are only explainable by the power of God. That people outside might say, this God thing, there's got to be something to it, because there's no reason why these people would get together if the gospel wasn't true. Could we be a compelling witness that way? That people would sense Christ when they look at us? May your church only be explainable by the gospel. The church is for them, it is for you, but ultimately it's for the glory of Christ. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for these precious people. They have given me their attention and time. I pray that it was serviced for your ends and for your glory. That anything that I have said that would be a detriment or a distraction from your word, Father, I pray that it would be instantly forgotten from their minds, brought to my mind that I might not ever say it again. But Father, anything from your word, anything that might adorn your word, I pray that it would find purchase. That you would re-energize and refresh these dear saints. Father, if anyone here does not know you, perhaps they think they do and don't, or perhaps they just know they don't, here for whatever reason, I pray that you would bring them from death to life, from darkness to light right into your kingdom by the power of your gospel. You have died for our sins. You have risen from the grave. We thank you, Lord.
So we pray these things in your name, in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.